The last year has been tough for newsrooms and their managers. If you are an experienced newsroom leader seeking fresh ideas, inspiration from peers and research insights, apply to Leading Newsroom Change, our course for senior editors and newsroom managers. Go to bit.ly slash R-I-S-J leadership for more information. Welcome to Future of Journalism, a podcast from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. I'm Mira Selva, Deputy Director of the Institute and Director of the Journalist Fellowship Programme. Joining us today is Nikki Usher. Nikki is Associate Professor at the University of Illinois at the College of Media's Journalism Department. Nikki's work focuses on news production in a changing digital environment, blending insights from media, sociology and political communications. Her first award-winning book, Making News at the New York Times, was based on months spent in the newsroom, observing daily conversations, meetings, and journalists at work, and is a real study of both the dynamics of a newsroom and power structures within it. Her second book, Interactive Journalism, Hackers, Data, and Code, focused on the rise of programming and data journalism. And her next book, to be published later this year, is an incredibly topical one, News for the Rich, White and Blue, How Place and Power Distort American Journalism. And it examines the challenges facing journalism in terms of place, power and, crucially, inequality. Welcome, Nikki, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me here and for that lovely introduction. I'm so delighted to speak with you and your global audience. So thank you. Thank you. And Nikki, let's start at the end. Um, well, the end as in your new book, News for the Rich, White and Blue. So it touches a key, touches on a key problem in journalism in that, as you say, large national international outlets have pivoted to serving readers who can and will choose to pay for news. And therefore you end up skewing coverage towards a wealthy, white and liberal audience in the US and yeah. a wealthy, white possibly less liberal, but I know right. what you mean, um, audience right. in the UK. Could you speak a bit more about the consequences of that? Um, so what I really worry about is you see essentially uh, the news that's most likely to survive is coming from these extremely large institutions and organizations that have global brands, right? So you can think of, and I think this is particularly the case when we look at what might be formally called a newspaper, because I don't think the Guardian or the New York Times or the FT uh, resembles anything close to a newspaper anymore. It's just kind of the archaic name that we call it. But what this ends up doing is that people who can pay for news and the people producing and writing the content and thinking about the content are all members increasingly so of a global elite, right? And the way to make money is no longer through ad-supported commercial media, but through subscriptions. And there's always been all sorts of inequity in access to news and information. The New York Times, for instance, has always positioned itself as head above shoulders, above the rest, through its own particular, you know, sense of gravitas ever since Adolf Sulzberger took the thing over. So um, I think it's really important to think about what the implications are when the news media that provides the most robust coverage of events around the world and of government and politics, um, particularly in the United States, is increasingly less representative of the people whose country it purports to cover, right? And, and increasingly disconnected. And so I really worry about that because if we wanna talk about the future of media and trust in journalism, and we wanna think about how to uh, 
um, minimize misinformation and mitigate polarization and fight for social justice. When you are having that conversation led and produced and directed to a small class of elites, I just wonder how you can meaningfully have that conversation. Interesting how we got here, because as you said, there's always been a kind of inequality of news access right. and right. in many ways the news media has always been a kind of elite profession for quite a long time so you know exactly. populated by an elite sector right. in britain certainly i think it sits in tandem with the kind of role of public sector broadcasting which is meant to fill in some of the right. gaps you talk about but also you know if you you look at how the people in the bbc sounded they were very much from a social right. class and a kind of uh, and a kind of you know a very kind of very, very narrow social class so I, but I can see where, where this is coming from in, in countries that had a kind of strong history of public sector broadcasting. Do you think that's the same case in the US or are there other factors at play here? Um, that kind of we see this rising inequality between access and news yeah. and information. Well, I think actually the, the UK is pretty interesting as the Reuters Institute itself showed there's greater inequality in access and news and information in the UK um, than there is actual real social inequality. And you all are from an aristocracy. So I find that a particularly potent, uh, potent point and in some ways um, a real sort of existential question about what the BBC was supposed to be doing all along, if that's really the case, right? But I think in the US, one of the things we've seen is the hollowing out of local newsrooms. And I am not one of these people who walks around saying we need to save local newspapers, we need to save community journalism, um, we need to save big city dailies, because in many, many places, right, the most important thing that a newspaper has long provided is the bulk of coverage right? The just sheer quantity of information about any one place. But a lot of those news organizations, many of the ones we worry about losing, have these horrible racist near histories and present histories and really strong legacies of maintaining the power quo, power status and status quo of the people around them and the institutions around them. And so um, I don't think we should be uncritical, but I do think that the emptying out and the hollowing out of local news and information in the United States leaves people who are hungry for news and information looking for alternatives. Those alternatives might be deeply partisan cable, radio content, right? And those alternatives might also be the New York Times. But there's a real difference between somebody who's choosing the New York Times and choosing to pay for it versus somebody who's resigned to now listening to their terrible local talk radio, right? Where does the kind of role of digital disruption sit here? Because we know about the loss of advertising revenue, and that's kind of fairly clear. But there was also kind of a you know, very optimistic vision of journalism, which is that once you lower the barriers to entry, you will start getting new kinds of journalists right. setting up blogs that become news products that speak specifically to communities that can use Facebook for, you know, for distribution. And then you can get this ecosystem and you do see it in many right. Right. You know, communities that were excluded from from both local news and national news finding um, their spaces but this often doesn't pay well it often doesn't pay and it you know i think that if i had to critique my own work i would say that i pay less attention than i should 
to the organic long-standing efforts of um, historically marginalized communities to produce their own news and information. And there are really strong legacies of this across the United States, um, from youth radio in Chicago to um, the legacy of uh, black and immigrant newspapers that you'll see all across the US and I believe also in, in the UK. Um, so I don't want to, to to disregard that long and important history, because that that sort of being heard has has long been a fight that these communities have have attempted, right? But I think that what we've seen is that the power of platforms is to amplify the already powerful. And if you look across any sort of big viral story, there's always a major media player or a major media celebrity who's provided that critical lift. And so I think there's ways in which platform power. We didn't, you know, when we were having this conversation, this very optimistic conversation about the rise of niche and the power of the people to publish and the power of the audiences, that was in 2006, right? This is before most people had access to Facebook. And so I think that it was a, a naive, wonderful sort of moment. But even at that time, as some of my colleagues work, Matt Hyman shows, that that digital democracy was very much occupied by white, EV, white Ivy League and privileged men. So it was never as quite as utopian. Um, but I want to get back to something that you asked me in the previous question, which was essentially, you know, we've had this longstanding inequality. Why does it matter more now? Right. We've had this longstanding inequality in access to news and information. And some of that is baked into socioeconomic status, baked into access to education, based into something as basic as time. Right. And based based in, um, you know, self-protection. If you're fighting all day just to make it through the day, the last thing that you care to do is turn to news that's going to tell you about the terrible things in your in your universe. Right. The news avoidance stuff that you all are doing. But what's more concerning now is that the kind of news organizations that provide the stuff that feed democratic life are increasingly ones that charge. And so the high quality news and information that you would expect to maybe see circulating on social media, we see it because those are our circles. Everybody listening to this podcast is overwhelmed with the news and information that their friends are sharing. This is not what the streams of people who aren't regular consumers of news and information are engaging with. And so it's hard for us to almost imagine a universe where, you know, you're not seeing CNN in the airports back when we went to airports, right? Or BBC, Sky News or whatever it might be. But for lots of people in the United States, these accidental encounters with news and information have gone. And they've gone in ways that you might not even notice, like Starbucks stopped carrying print newspapers, right? And if you're waiting online at Starbucks, like back when we waited online, <laughs> um, you might actually like pick up a copy or it'd be somebody would have left it out right there are these ways in which um exposure to local news and information in particular is drastically diminished when there's a high bar of entry and it's not just about pay it's also about bandwidth so there are lots of people in the united states who have really terrible interconnect internet connections maybe because they live in rural america maybe because their kids are using it for zoom right and so when you've got the clunky loading of these horrible sort of advertising sites people with older devices phones or computers can't even handle that right so there's a, a sort of more subtle barrier to entry that actually has to do with technological devices that can handle all the malware that these news organizations are putting on our, our our software so this disconnect is has been there but increasingly the survival of the news industry depends on people who will pay 
And the people who don't want to or can't pay are being further and further left out. And that's what I worry about, right? We have reached a critical breaking point where the market failure of especially local newspapers is impossible to ignore. This is not a crisis. This is like, actually things are closing down and there will be no more, right? I want to come back to the malware issue because this is something I think where journalism as an entity bears some responsibility for using. Oh, yeah. Can use. yeah. But the more fundamental question is you're absolutely right that the financials of the news media industry don't make any sense anymore. There's basically market failure of what people recognize is a public good in many ways. What's the solution? Because every time you look at who should pay for journalism, you end up with a yes, but. Right. Is it the state? Yes, but they're not a neutral party is it individuals which is what the membership drives and the subscription models are focused on but then you get the scenario you've described that it's the people who can pay who get the news that serve for them so i think that i want to kind of answer this question almost backwards because what i tend to do is i tend to study how news gets produced and the forces that challenge and constrain and provide opportunities for how journalists do their work and i think that to some degree the answer begins with having more inclusive news organizations because there are you know even in the u.s i think that the average rate of college graduation is maybe 25 percent and in newsrooms it's something like 99 percent right and for for many people just entry and access to work in a news organization has required being at an elite university often requires um having a family that can provide a financial backstep against a precarious news industry. And I think to some degree, right, because we're talking about massive structural equity shifts, to do that, you need people that are in newsrooms to advocate for the kinds of stories that cover wider expanses of the community, but by but also about the news consumption experiences of people who don't have great digital devices, who don't have social media flowing their streams, and who wouldn't think to spend extra money on a news subscription per se. But I do think that Right. But you're asking about the solution, who should pay in the US. I think that there are a couple of things that can be done. I think that Google and this, of course, is like a very normative, very like political ramp. But, you know, look, the topsy turvy digital advertising economics are absolutely absurd. And the fact that Google and Facebook occupy so much power in the domain of our data, which enables the power of their digital marketing, right? That is something that really can be regulated as a privacy matter, not a speech matter. And I think what that does is it stabilizes the it destabilizes their stranglehold on digital advertising, which I think provides an entry place for many news organizations to think about a do-over. What I really worry about, and my research in the book shows this, is that there's a real sort of political economy of who gets to be supported by philanthropy, right? This kind of pack philanthropy. And there's a reason you constantly read about the same couple of news organizations that are getting money and doing well. And it's because donors give to places that they know to people that they know. And our research actually showed, my research actually showed that the, the most common, it's a geographic pairing, right? In Silicon Valley, there's that like 20 minute rule, right? Where like most investors give to organizations with like businesses within 20 minutes. In this in this case, it's most founders and big funders in big blue cities give to news organizations in other big blue cities, right? And, and if you're 
and the issues in places that are not super urban metro areas are going to be different. The ways that you can even fund journalism are going to be different. So my call is to go back to real geographic specifics because local markets all have different and unique properties and what works in one won't work in the other. And so I've got a whole chapter about how seemingly like demographically similar places have very different institutional responses and structural responses to the crisis in news and information. Some of it just depends on who your local billionaire happens to be. If you've got a local billionaire like Warren Buffett, who's decided that investing in news is super risky now, you've lost your like local billionaire. Right. If you've got a local billionaire, as I point out in Youngstown, Ohio, the first city in America without a local newspaper uh, who's getting pardoned by the Trump administration, you also don't have a local billionaire. Right. And some places don't have the same tradition of philanthropic giving to media. Right. Um, so I think. Right. And I think the way that we rethink this and this is kind of a long winded answer, but I think there are three things we can do. I think first we think about offloading the duties of journalism, like institutional news media. So there are many things that news organizations do that local community organizations and community institutions and civic groups already do, right? The public health department in my county has been responsible for producing graphics and maps and charts and case numbers and testing sites. A news organization doesn't necessarily need to replicate that. And arguably the public health department might have greater reach and potentially more trusted public authority in a local community, right? So offload, offload the basic responsibilities of ordinary information provision and gathering to places that are doing a great job of providing it, right? If you want to go to the local school board, you can stream that on your computer now, right? You don't actually physically have to send a journalist, journalist to go to it. But there are also, there's this documenters program in Chicago that's run by Civic City Bureau, and they actually train people to go to public meetings, mm -hmm. right? These are not journalists. People have to be trained as traditional journalists, but you can send people who are already engaged to help become reporters for their communities. So I think offload all that are the kinds of information gathering that people are already doing in other centers and institutions and double down on the role that journalism plays um, to do things other people can't, right? So what do journalists, and, and I think that my answer, like what do journalists do in particular communities in particular states in particular countries that other people don't do, that other institutions don't do, right? And I think that, that figuring out what that does, maybe that's not gonna be market supported, but at least it's cheaper to run an organization when you're not covering everything. So but, that's one thing. The data just jumped out at me because we've been having these conversations about data, public data across mm -hmm. the different countries. And in some countries, it's fine. You can get the official right. statistics and you trust right. them. And in others, you absolutely oh, can't absolutely. journalists do yeah. play the crucial role. So even in the US or the UK, you know, I, I'd be wary of kind of taking local authority data uncritically oh, i don't think it's about local authority data i think it's about like very basic orientation needs mm -hmm. right there is absolutely no reason for the local newspaper to rush out a snowstorm edition That's when it. i'm gonna you know so i think what you're talking about is actually that unique role right checking legitimating kind of public data right that is absolutely a specialty that journalists have Right. So what is it that that is? And I also think and this is like radical in the United States and people want to like pillory me for it. But I think that being open and honest about partisanship is really important. 
particularly in local communities. And I think that um, you actually create some market incentives if you actually have hyperpartisan local media. I know that people are really resistant to hearing this and people think I'm crazy, but I actually think it's a really good thing for at least the American news market that the Republican Party is going around and funding these local news organizations. Because what does that do? It forces the Democratic Party to think about how they're going to counter. And I think that arguably we're going back to like the 1830s or maybe 1820s of American journalism where we have a party subsidized press. I know it's crazy. People, people think I'm totally nuts, but I actually look partisan media sells. Okay. It, it, you're not a bad person because you read polarized news in the United States. It's often that way perceived that way or watch partisan news. Um, in the UK, it's different, right? Because you have your party allegiances in your in your in your printed broadcast. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. You're back. Moved point two. No, no, no. I mean, I think that's 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 part point two, and then point three in terms of changing the structure of how we actually make journalism more representative and more attuned to novel solutions. I think that one of the things I propose is actually changing the way that we fund federal student aid. Um, right now in the U.S., you get money to work at your university from the federal government by like swiping people's lunch cards at the dining hall, right? Or, you know, um, running the school bookstore or something like that. And in some cases, it can be this money can be used to sponsor internships at like community organizations, but not always. It depends. And I think there's a way to redirect some of that money to actually encourage young people to work for their news organizations. This is also, I think, a reform that might make a difference to um, tech companies too, right? If students can, as part of their financial aid package, these are kids who already need money, right? Can go work for a tech company instead of swiping lunch cards, I think you'll see a real huge change in the way organizations and institutions think about equity. Um, so I think really it's like a multi-pronged approach of like simplifying, understanding specific community needs, understanding what journalists do best in those communities and municipalities and states and, you know, countries, right? Um, and uh, breaking up big tech, returning to partisan media, and changing higher education financial aid. That's that's my platform. If I were to be elected as like newspaper, local media, journalism, digital media reformer in chief, that's what I'd run on. Well, the third point about getting people to work in newspapers, I would also do a lot for media literacy, because even if these people didn't stay in journalism, they have had a stint of being exposed to how it works. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, I, I teach a lot of classes that somehow aren't taken by journalism students. Uh, and last night I had to spend, you know, a full hour just explaining that, you know, what is objectivity? Where did it come from? And why is it such a miserable, <laughs> a miserable ideal that really is impossible for any human, right? So, I mean, I think that, um, you know, in the sense that like we all have our, our perspective when we approach content and journalists select and choose what to, right? Like there's always a process of, anyway, that's a longer conversation. But the point being is you're absolutely right, right? There's these, even in the smallest municipality, a news organization is a place of power that not everybody's guaranteed access and entry to. And so giving more people an understanding of how this powerful institution works, I think 
maybe would increase cynicism, but it would also increase transparency. That actually said you to my next point, which is about the state of journalism education. And certainly in the US, you've got some of the biggest well-known, most well-known kind of journalism schools in the world. Um, and there's a debate everywhere about, you know, are, the, are these schools teaching journalists the skills they need? Are they, you know, are they having the right debates on objectivity? Are they taking the issue of diversity and the kind of topics that are covered seriously enough? Um, saying what do you think but what if you if if you were ruler ruler of the media world and you were given journalism schools as a brief um yeah would you what would you change instantly i mean i think tuition <laughs> i mean seriously um i think that uh the columbia school of journalism is what the same price as many um masters in business administrations i mean if you want to think about equity and access um, I think that's the easiest place to go. I think it's um, one of the things I also think is that there's this weird global power hegemony where all these journalists from all over the world go to the U.S. to get trained. And these networks are super important, right? Because that's what enables the Panama Papers and the Pentagon Papers. These are old friends from journalism school, right? And and so in that regard, it's it's really important. But I also really wonder about how our U.S. journalism schools end up exporting a certain way of thinking about doing journalism that may not really make sense within the context and countries in which many of the journalists that are doing the work and go back to do the work actually function. And so I think there needs to be a really honest conversation about like, like, I hate to use the word post-colonial, right? Because it's like a very academic word to some degree, but Gosh, I, I can't think of a better expression of American hegemony than journalism school. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm never going to work at Columbia. <laughs> no, but it's true, right? I mean, amazing, valuable skills about data scraping and, you know, how to build new technology, which arguably is not something a journalism school actually needs to do because you can just like, get training in tech skills, right? So what are you training journalists to do? Are you training them to think a particular way about analyzing the world, right? And about, you know, how to source, how to think about major technological changes, how to think about power. Well, who's who's doing that training? I think we need to have a really big discussion because I think the impact of journalism schools is far more profound than many people even working in them realize. Am I? I'm sorry. I'm so terrible. I'm like, <laughs> I think there's kind of an aspiration that you know this is this is it's given a gold standard, and then people adopt that internally. Inter they internalize that without necessarily thinking through whether it's relevant to to their situation. Yeah. yeah, I think we could have a more honest and robust conversation about how doing journalism in certain contexts is simply impossible, the way that many American journalism schools would wish that it be done. To come on to our fellowship to talk about that. <laughs> um, you, you, you know, you've, you've turned your gaze on diversity into academia too. And I remember your keynote at a conference when you asked the kind of senior white male academics on the board of who sat on the board of more than two journals to consider resigning and recommend as their replacement someone that was either non-white, female, or from the global south. I'm interested to know why you thought that was needed and what happened after you made that call, which was two years ago, I think. Yeah, so I mean, I think there are a couple of different ways in which um, like 
I was, this is sort of like a part of a larger um, dialogue happening within the field of communication. And so I wanted to kind of do a journalism so white thing, because when you're given the opportunity to address basically all the most powerful people in your field and given the power of a keynote, it really, I mean, yes, it can be about promoting your own research, but for me, it's about how that privilege can be used to kind of start a conversation to dismantle, you know, some of the reasons that there are only certain types of people in that particular room. And so, um, you know, there are academic gatekeepers just as there are gatekeepers in every other, you know, institution. And one of those gatekeeping functions is the academic journal, right? And these are very symbolic because who's on an academic journal tells you something about who's important, right? It tells you something about what research is valued. And half the time, many of the very senior people who are on those journals don't even do much of the reviewing anymore. So their expertise is lost. They can say like, oh, I'm too busy. And it falls to the invisible labor of more junior scholars. Um, and so, you know, I think it's a, the editorial board composition of any journal, and you can look at this across the academy, is a signal of what matters and who matters. And I think that if we're really serious about thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, you have to think about how to make those extremely important gatekeepers and symbolic artifacts more representative um, and maybe over-representative of places that have been, places and people that have been historically marginalized. And what happened after you made that call? Um, well, later that night I went to the bar and cried because someone yelled at me. Um, it was constructive yelling, but you know, I think I want to just acknowledge that as somebody who doesn't have to do the emotional work of having to confront diversity and equity in every single, single interaction I have, that the decision to do this work um, and to have to live this work is extremely fraught with emotional labor. And to just go to the next, like, well, what happens? I think it's important we all recognize that doing this work is hard. And it's really important for news managers and news leaders to know that when they're asking their employees to be part of the conversation, that it isn't as simple as just flipping the switch. Oh, and doing something. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there and not um, because it, it was like a terrifying thing to be able to do and to use, use that space for. Um, what was really exciting is a number of people stepped off, but I would say these are arguably the like more woke people who have acknowledged the problem. Right. And the, real people who really need to be sitting back and questioning their power and whether they're giving back as much as they've taken really didn't do that. Right. And so I think that, um, so it was like a small sort of motion forward to have the conversation and many people did step off. Um, and, and so I think that that was progress. I think that if I were to track the membership of these boards pre and post, I think that many of the journals have radically improved. They've added associate editors that are more diverse. Um, there have been more special issues on journalism in the global South. There has been a real renewed effort to, um, especially with uh, digital journalism, one of the journals to uh, provide translation um, of key findings. And those are all things that structurally, some of them were in the work structurally, maybe I helped start that conversation, but you know, Journalism research, especially in some places, can pave the way to reform and to better conversations. And so if that research is more equitable and inclusive, then the whole conversation around the future of journalism can, can also improve. 
how much do you think it sits ta- in tandem with the conversation on diversity in journalism in in, in newsrooms? Um, because you know, I you know, I kind of feel straddle look at both industries, but there are a lot of journalists who just don't keep an eye on communication studies at all. But the con- but diversity is one of the topics that does seem to have crossed over. And yeah, I mean, I think um, one of the things is is like you know, there are things that journalists think they know about that they don't really need the academy for. And we definitely over theorize and do academic performance and all of this stuff because it's the academy. It's what we're supposed to do, right? It's a different sort of thing. Um, but something journalists feel like they have less of a, gra- a grasp on, I think, is how to make their institutions more diverse and equitable and how to confront larger structural barriers um, to actually make journalism, right, journalism itself and the practice of journalism more aware of power, right? And I think that academics are sitting in a natural place to think about power, but the inherent sort of whiteness, Americanness, Angloness of the academy has long prevented a lot of that research from even being thought of. Um, right now, I have a student who is a non-traditional academic student, and she's coding right now for um, misogynoir, right? So, so black female, miso- black misogyny against, uh, misogyny against black women and something she's coding for something I have never seen coded for an academic journal, which is hairstyles as a proxy for sexuality, right? And sexualization. And as a white woman who doesn't in- like necessarily think about that because I should be, but maybe, you know, it's just not within my register, that variable of hairstyles, a proxy for stereotyping, Right. We need people in the academy, but also within news organizations who have those insights and are empowered to say, look at what we do when we present people in this way. Right. We're reinforcing legacies of stereotypes. And this is a conversation that is cross cutting, hopefully, across every major field and institution um, in you know, <laughs> social life today. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really kind of really important point and also goes back to this idea of who's making these decisions, who's making the calls. And we've done research at the Reuters Institute on leadership, so kind of gender and leadership and race and yeah. leadership, because yeah. ultimately I do think it's about power. And I right. that's why you're called to on the editorial boards structure residence for me, because I feel like things aren't going to really change till there's, you know, it is a zero-sum game. For someone to be in charge, someone else has to not be in charge. You have to you can't just keep adding numbers. Well, and I also think, though, it's about, you know, there is some general generational change that has to happen because, you know, my primary research site in an organization that I both love and critique all the time, the New York Times, I mean, Dean Bacay has been running the New York Times for, I don't know, I mean, I don't even remember how many years now, but having the first Black editor of the New York Times, I wouldn't say that the New York Times is suddenly a paragon of coverage or race and diversity. In fact, Dean killed the race, equity, and diversity beat, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that we have to be really careful, too, and not just assuming that, you know, physical representation is a proxy for the willingness to challenge institutional norms. So I think that's really important, because it's not just what people look like, it's what their commitments are. And what people look like is like a pretty good proxy, because Often those people aren't even in the room, but just because you, you, you know, I mean, you, you know this well, but your allies and advocates aren't necessarily people who look like you, 
because they look like you, right? Absolutely. I mean, do you think there's more pressure for change coming? You're absolutely right that it's generational, but do you think the pressure is coming more from within newsrooms or outside newsrooms from the audiences and would-be audiences? I mean, I think it depends on the news organization and its scale and reach. So my local newspaper here in central Illinois has been publishing mugshot photos, right? So this is like something that I don't think is done outside of the US where somebody gets arrested and then and before we try them, we publish their picture in the newspaper. So you see their race and their name and everything else, right? Um, and this is innocent until proven guilty, but it generates massive click traffic because everybody wants to see who was arrested, right? And in the wake of the George Floyd protests, my local newspaper said, ah, maybe we shouldn't do that anymore, right? So local community protest. And I think that that was an example of pressure coming from the outside, right? If you look at some of the really huge news organizations, I think the New York Times and the Washington Post um, stand out for me. Um, and also to some degree, um, NBC with regard to gender equity. Uh, I think you see a lot of that pressure coming from within. And I think some of that has to do with the increasing power of unions, right? LA Times too, right? The power of unions to give journalists a sense of, um, a sense of power against the, the management, right? So there's a sense of protection that you can advocate for diversity because you have a space to have these conversations with colleagues to push for change against management. Um, so I think those are coming from within. That's really interesting. And unions, again, in Europe, part of the problem has been that many of the journalist unions, again, don't represent this new mm -hmm. generation. They're kind of quite entrenched. Yeah. They're yeah, privileging I mean, their own way. Everything I've learned about French journalism from my colleagues suggests <laughs> to me that the union man is uh, of, a, of a France journalist is like the antithesis to innovation in news and journalism, not yeah, to it. <laughs> but it's, 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 another, it's another organization with its own power structure. I feel like I've just taken all these terrible pot shots at people <laughs> and institutions. So please make sure that I haven't totally thrown anybody under the bus or embarrassed myself in doing so. <laughs> at all. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much, Nikki. It's been a terrific Thank conversation. You. Thank you so much. Thank you. So our guest today was Nikki Usher at the University of Illinois' College of Media and the author of the upcoming News for the Rich, White and Blue, How Place and Power Distort American Journalism. And that's out in June. Make sure to follow our podcast channel on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss the next episode. And if you don't want to miss any news from the Institute, subscribe to our weekly newsletter by clicking on the link on our Twitter bio or on our homepage. Thank you for listening to The Future of Journalism. I'm Mira Selva and we'll be back soon.